Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm here with Andy. Hello, good evening. And this is an episode that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, I have on not one, not two, but three guests today to talk about all things sex work. So we have Rachel Rabbit White, poet, writer, columnist, sex worker, nightmare dressed like a daydream. Hello. We have on Oyster, a self-described whore of all trades and organizer. Howdy. And we have Nina Lowe, a community organizer with Decrim New York. Hi, friends. I am so excited to have all of you guys here today. Oh, my God. So before we get into, you know, the meat of the episode, um, I wanted to ask you a question that's been on a lot of people's minds around left Twitter. Um, I was asked the same question when I went on Ghetto News Network last weekend, and I wanted to get your take. Shout out to Ghetto News Network, by the way. Are vibrators a tool of neoliberal capitalism? Vibrators are queer. <laughs> and we will definitely have vibrators after the revolution. Yeah, we're going to have vibrators after the revolution. I think so many. Necessary. Like five per person. The only people who could make that argument are people who think that vibrators are just for like one person to use as like a replacement for any kind of sex with anyone else. This person's also clearly never shared a Hitachi wand with a partner, which like balancing it between the two of you, it's highly recommended. It's great. All right. Well, maybe that person has a little more research to do. (laughs) Um, I also wanted to bring up the elephant in the room, get it out of the way. Um, There was recently an article in New York Magazine about your event, Porn Carnival, Rachel, that, you know, was like controversial in some circles. Um, I didn't find much controversial about it, except what is with the whippets? (laughs) oh my god there were many references to whippets in there and like you seem like a cosmopolitan person with access to all kinds of good drugs like why whippets whippets are amazing you've never done whippets no i have yeah i'm like it's just is this just a thing that like virgil has foisted on all of us (laughs) pretty much but um because i have like a whippet cracker at home that he gave me for my birthday last (sighs) year and sometimes i'm sitting around i'm like yeah i'll do a whippet but like they're fine they're not like well, when Virgil brings a thousand to the after party, a thousand whippets, then I think you really start to understand. Yeah, I'm I'm convinced that whippets just bring you closer to death or to God. I mean, like, yeah, same, same thing. Diff. Yeah, I was offended for a related reason, which is how could you do that to that poor cake? I mean, <laughs> you're treating a cake in this fucked up way. You're using something that's to make delicious whipped cream in an illicit way. Like, why are you disrespecting my pastry culture? Oh, I thought you were referring to the cake that Lindsay Dye twerked on. And I was like, yeah. that oh, was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. What if, you know, what if I just want the cake? Like, people are probably eating edibles at that party. They're stoned. They want some cake. My publisher, um, Ben Fama, did sincerely ask me if we were going to be able to eat the cake afterwards. Oh, man. And I was like, no, Ben. Like, I mean, we, it's the Wait, you can't stuff. even eat it afterwards? I, I thought that was the point. <laughs> Maybe if you want to, like, lick it off her ass or something. <laughs> I mean, that would right? cost you. That would cost you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, for those not in the know, there was a cake sitting yes. at this porn carnival party. Probably the most lit reading that I've ever been to. Granted, it's a low bar. <laughs> but uh, Rachel threw a really cool party at uh, Venus and Furs a few weeks ago. And someone sat on a cake, which is apparently like a thing. 
Yeah, Lindsay Dye is a, like a genre. Yeah, she's a cake sitter, performance artist, and Porn Carnival is also the name of my collection of poetry that the the party was for, the book launch. Cool, cool. So I think we're gonna get into a little bit of the poetry later, but first we're gonna talk about the nuts and bolts of sex worker organizing and decriminalization. So uh, let's start with the basics, all right? Because uh, not everybody listening probably knows that much about this topic, and I think it's really important. So what is Decrim New York, and what are the basic things you've been working on? So Decrim New York is a coalition of organizations and people dedicated to decriminalizing, decarcerating, and destigmatizing the sex trades in New York City and state. Um, our goal is not to take a moral position on whether people should or should not be doing sex work or how people should be living their lives. We know that people are often doing sex work survival. Um, and so it's important that we remove policing and the criminal legal system from people's lives just because they're doing what they need to do. Word. So um, back in June, Melissa Gear Grant did a big report on a decrim bill that was heading to the New York State Legislature. Um, as I understand it, it was very good and very comprehensive, sponsored by DSA's very own Julia Salazar. Shout out to Julia. Shine on, you crazy socialist diamond. So uh, where are we at with that now? Yeah, so there are two major legislative efforts, both last session and this upcoming Albany session. Um, one of the bills we're working on is repealing the walking while trans ban, also known as the lording for the purposes of prostitution. Um, and that statute allows police to harass and arrest mostly trans and gender nonconforming people of color just for like standing around. You read the police reports and it's literally like this person was wearing a skirt. This person was standing somewhere other than a bus stop or taxi stand. This person was waving at a car, like all legitimate reasons for arrest under this statute. So just occupying public space. So that bill will probably pass before the actual decrim bill. Um, and we hope that that bill will pass this session, especially given sort of the momentum around um, reducing state violence against trans women of color after Leilene Polanco's death. And the bill that you're talking about, which is the Stop Violence in the Sex Trades Act, SVSTA, is sponsored by Salazar and Ramos on the Senate side, and also now Senator um, Jackson. And then on the Assembly side, there's a whole number of people, including Gottfried, um, Yuling New, Ron Kim, Dan Court, a bunch of other people. Um, that bill is going to take many years to move. And I also know that the uh, opposition, which is the folks who want to end the sex trade, um, through any means necessary, including like increased violence in policing, they're introducing sort of an alternative model this session. So it's going to be like an all out fight. I think that our movement is where marijuana was 10 years ago, if not more. Um, but all it is is continue to build political power, like both in New York City and upstate New York, and then moving legislators, whether through empathy and like direct lobbying or just through force via protest. Rad. Well, if it's like marijuana was 10 years ago, then that's pretty optimistic, right? Because that has been moving in one direction for the most part. Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, people who don't get on the right side of this issue will be left behind. Like there is there is going to be a victory. It's just going to take a while. But every single day I look at the progress we've made and I marvel five years ago, I would never have imagined we would be where we are. And today we see progressives um, and socialists, obviously, but progressives and liberals taking positions on this issue that they never would have taken just a couple years ago. Hell yeah. So um, 
to ask another very basic question. Um, what's the difference between decriminalization and legalization? And why do you favor decrim? So if you really get into the differences between decriminalization and legalization, it starts to get pretty technical. I would say the most important thing is that decriminalization removes criminal penalties for adults who are consenting um, to exchange in any kind of sex work or sexual exchange. Um, legalization sets up more strict regulations um, for like different conditions under which that kind of work is allowed. So... As an example, in countries or states such as Nevada where there's legalization, you usually have restrictions such as people are only allowed to work in brothels that are licensed and the brothel licenses cost like a certain amount of money. And so you still have a whole class of people who are considered criminals because they're excluded from that work, right? Like if it's a brothel-based system such as in Nevada, trans women are often discriminated against, not allowed to work in brothels. So what they're doing is criminal because they're not doing work that is technically legal. Undocumented people, not allowed to work there. And so the same kind of like street-based workers, migrant workers, um, trans women who are ex especially targeted under criminalization are still excluded and criminalized under legalization, which is why we favor decriminalization so that people who truly um, are facing the brunt of criminalization no longer experience that. Word. I think that's sometimes a hard pill to swallow for like big government liberals who think that it is just across the board good to regulate any industry that exists. Um, I'm working within like an abolitionist framework as in abolishing the carceral state, not abolishing sex work. Um, so it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us also work under that same framework. Um, we don't think that there really is a, a place for police, criminalization, courts, surveillance, in this industry word so speaking of surveillance and the bad things that come along with getting the state involved um what's the connection between the current sort of law enforcement efforts around sex trafficking and ice because i feel like a lot of people don't realize how connected they are and you know, good liberals know to hate ICE, like abolish ICE is kind of a mainstream slogan, but they might not know the connection here. Yeah. So I think to answer that, um, we have to take it back to where the term trafficking came from. Um, so anti-prostitution laws used to not exist in the United States, right? They didn't happen until the progressive era um, as a way to regulate sort of these new subcultures that were developing amongst working class women and immigrant women who were gaining economic freedom. Um, and so uh, people became very concerned about uh, probably uh, them interacting with like middle class white women's husbands. And so um, they developed prostitution laws that really at the time were regulating not just actual sex work, but promiscuity. So like the same way that lording for the purpose of prostitution laws today just target anyone that police consider to be over-sexualized, like, that was, that was what they were doing at the time as well. And then you had in 1910 the, um, the Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, which is the, really the first time we see, um, the specter of trafficking being used to create policy. And what that act is supposed to do is, um, prevent the, 
prevent the transport of women like across state lines for quote unquote immoral purposes. But what do they mean by immoral purposes? They mean prostitution. What it actually did was just criminalize black men for having romantic relationships with white women. So some of the first people who were criminalized under this act were, um, you know, famous people like the black boxer Jack Johnson. Um, and so then fast forward to today. Um, I think very few people understand that anti-trafficking rhetoric is one um, rooted in anti-prostitution and and um, like anti-sex work views and two um, also rooted in like anti-blackness. Um, and the way that we see it applied now is often just like, for example, the massage parlor rates that continuously happen both here in Flushing, but also like all over the country, um, for example, in Florida with the recent like craft stings is you see this like specter of trafficking being used to justify policing and massage parlors. And then there's like, you know, some six month intense kind of surveillance. Um, and then there's like where the police are actually having sex with the people who are in the massage parlors, which shouldn't be allowed anyways, obviously. Um, and then they do a massive raid, like hundreds of women arrested. You say that you're rescuing them for trafficking. Turns out later there's no trafficking charges that are filed. Yes, their working conditions may not be optimal, but they're doing what they're doing because they're sending money back or this is like the work that they want to do or this is how they're surviving. Not because another person is explicitly like physically coercing them into that situation um, beyond, you know, our economic system. And um and then those women often face deportation proceedings and they're handed over to ICE, right? And like in New York, when people get arrested for prostitution and they go to diversion courts, which are really just still in criminal court, ICE literally waits at those courts to pick people up and send them um, to wherever they uh, wherever they migrated from. Jesus. If they, hmm? Jesus. Yeah, and so I think like trafficking, you know, obviously is like a serious issue at the same time it's important to remember that trafficking happens in a variety of industries when you look at like trafficking statistics very few people talk about the fact that um, many more people are being trafficked into private sector labor industries so like manufacturing agriculture construction those are huge areas where trafficking happens a lot and no one talks about the trafficking that's happening that is state sanctioned which is like prison labor right so like Anytime there's kind of forced conscription, um, paramilitary institutions forcing people to do economic or military labor that they don't want to do or any labor that's happening to like that's happening while people are incarcerated. None of that counts as trafficking. But really, there's just as much force, fraud and coercion existing in that kind of situation as any kind of like, quote unquote, sex trafficking situation, which isn't to say that like people don't get trafficked into the sex trades. That definitely happens. But the point is that trafficking is a larger problem of exploitation that happens when you have people with different levels of power. And so addressing trafficking means that you need to empower the people who are disempowered in the first place and give them more economic options so that that isn't literally their only option or open up borders so that people don't have to be in dangerous situations to migrate somewhere for safety. Um, the solution isn't to target trafficking as if it's a problem that's endemic to the sex trade and the sex trade only. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, I mean, we can all agree that trafficking is a real problem and that it's really bad. But like, how how should law enforcement approach it? Is there just nothing good that law enforcement could possibly do? Because like most people hear trafficking and they're like, wow, that's fucked up. We really need to fix it. But they might not know how, especially when you're talking about minors, I think is a very like uh, kind of 
I don't want to say lurid because like some of these people are operating in good faith, but like you have like a viscerally negative reaction to it. A lot of I was a full service sex worker as a minor and just based off of that, that's considered trafficking, even though I was like running everything independently, even though I was like on back page on my own accord. Um, and if I if I had been caught by the state, then I would have been like charged with like trafficking myself and like sentenced to like the prostitution equivalent of like John's school. Um, it's when when you talk about uh, you know the whole thing of minors uh, doing sex work, it's often like queer people. It's often. Uh, children or minors who do not have good home lives who are doing this to support themselves in a way that would not be feasible if they were living like with their uh, caretakers um and it is also something that happens a lot in the foster system so like this is not really talked about a lot there is um one writer who i can give you their information um but she's talked about how like the foster care system in america is like one of the largest things that facilitates the like actual trafficking of minors in america so in terms of minors being involved in sex work you wouldn't define any minor involved in sex work as being a trafficking victim no even though the state does okay so you think the answer is more to provide financial services for people of all ages probably yes i mean i think that like um people only envision law enforcement as a solution because we lack imagination and we've been told that law enforcement is the solution what is better than quote-unquote rescuing someone from a trafficking situation is that that trafficking never happens in the first place so i really challenge people to think about like why people are being exploited and why people are often running away from their homes or running away from foster care to trade sex to survive in new york state young lgbtq people trade sex at seven to eight times the rate of their cisgender heterosexual peers and that's because lgbtq people who are young like often run away and then basically have no other resource but often to trade sex together for housing and like that's actually people are doing sex work for and so like yes that's not optimal nobody wants that but the solution is not more policing it's actually long-term lgbtq identity affirming housing for these young people um and like different ways of treating these young people in the first place and so you know for situations like that where there isn't like an actual exploiter i think it's really about resources um and that honestly addresses the majority of exploitation that's happening because most people who are being trafficked into the sex trades already were doing sex work right it's like not like a random white girl as like anti-trafficking organizations would have you believe it's actually like a black woman who's already doing sex work who then like becomes exploited in that situation and so like how do you prevent that exploitation from happening when someone's already doing sex work well maybe if they had more options then they wouldn't get into that situation in the first place whether that's housing or like you know another um job that 
pays not just the minimum wage, but actually like a living wage um, or like childcare or like w- whatever the situation is. I think that we really have to trust people to make the best decisions for themselves and as much as possible empower them by giving them more options rather than trying to force them to do this or that through the criminal legal system. Um, but as for like dealing with the actual traffickers, what we have right now isn't working. No one ever reports trafficking. When they do, they get laughed at and police criminalize them. Like trafficking survivors literally get arrested. Um, and so, you know, like there, there are community organizations that are working on like increasing community safety by having um, people who are experiencing exploitation report trafficking to them. And then they can create safety plans, much like organizations that do domestic violence work do for those people. Um because we know right now that the police don't do anything. And uh, I really don't think it's like a problem that can be addressed within police because their sort of like mode around sex work is that these people are criminals and um, we need to arrest them. And that's not much like anti-blackness is a problem in NYPD like or any police force. Like this is similarly a problem. Yeah. Like how do you... Where do you draw the line between consensual work and trafficking? Because, I mean, we are all living under capitalism, right? And I've been, I've seen people ask the question, does it mean you're being trafficked by your job? And I would say the answer is yes, on some level. Like, most people don't really want to be at work when they're at work. They're doing it because they need the money. Like, all labor under capitalism is exploitation. We know this. At the same time... I think it still makes sense for a civilized society to like draw the line on forms of hyper exploitation that at least for now they're going to say, well, at least we shouldn't have this. Right. And so that's why like our bill to decriminalize sex work doesn't repeal or amend any of the statutes. It upholds all the statutes that criminalize trafficking. Um, So anything that involves a third party that compels someone to do labor, including in the sex industry via force, fraud or coercion, which is the U.N. definition of trafficking, that stays on the books. But my point is, like, we can draw that line legally. People are still being hyper exploited and trafficked. So we need to figure out, like, real ways that are additional to policing in the criminal legal system, which right now is not working to reduce and prevent the exploitation. So um, in opposing decriminalization, um, liberal feminist organizations have made some unlikely alliances with right wing groups, paleoconservatives, just like the worst, least feminist people on the planet. But decriminalization also brings some unlikely allies together, right, from the socialist left to right wing libertarians. Um, And I know at this point. Maybe this is still true, maybe it's not, but I know some of those in decrim and why are operating from an abolitionist perspective in terms of abolishing the carceral state, while others are not. Some are anti-capitalist, while others are not. So what, if any, challenges um, are posed by these kinds of tensions? Or does it not matter when we're dealing with such an urgent issue? Um, it definitely poses tensions, I don't know if you saw, but Decrim New York is aligned with no new jails. So, oh, hell yeah. you know, however individuals feel, um, the organizational stance is at least somewhat explicitly abolitionist um, or opposed to the building of new carceral state. Um, I don't think we're going to win this fight just by being tactical or strategic. We need to lead with principles and vision. And so this is like a conversation that we constantly have. Um, but... At the same time, like 
we do work on legislation. Like we don't just do um, actions and like turn it up, you know, like we meet with legislators every day. And so um, having the right messengers, building with the right groups, it's just like a very kind of complex issue to manage. Yeah. And it seems like in terms of the libertarian voices, like I think only two people voted against I'm confusing Sesta and Fossa now, but like one of the people was Rand Paul. Yeah. The libertarian. So like, how do you approach people like that? Is it more like a tactical alliance and like they can fuck off the rest of the time or like. What? I, I mean, libertarians have supported decrim for many years and they haven't gotten anything done. So I don't really know what to say, you know, like um, put in the work libertarians. <laughs> Yeah, we got to move on this issue. And the way that we're moving is through a um, like a leftist pro worker, pro people of color movement. That's that's what's working right now. Rad. So. Further on the topic of coalition, I guess we could call it um, Ayanna Presley, rogue member of the squad. um, She endorsed Elizabeth Warren, so she's not the most radical person out there, but. She just came out in favor of sex work decriminalization, if I read the article right, because like sometimes people say they're for decriminalization and then you look it up and it's like, oh, Kamala Harris supports the Swedish model where you only criminalize parts of the sex trade. And that's not decrim. Um, But as far as I know, Ayanna Presley has endorsed decrim. Um, Bernie Sanders has yet to do so. The socialist candidate for president. Um, What's going on here? Like, is the left really going to get owned by the libs on this one? And do you see decriminalization becoming a mainstream position on the progressive left? Uh, I think that if the left doesn't move quickly enough, yes, it will get owned. Um, Part of the reason I say this is because I'm working on a report about decrim that a lot a lot of national organizations that work on civil rights and racial justice issues that you might consider to be like progressive organizations are going to sign on to, um, which will come out next year. And I think that, you know, last I know, the conversations that surrogates um, had with Bernie in New York was that he was still concerned about trafficking. And I think that the left needs to get it together and learn the history of trafficking because allowing the specter of trafficking to control an issue where some of the most marginalized workers are truly experiencing intense criminalization and stigmatization, um, a narrative that was formed by white women who are interested in increasing incarceration in this country in the first place is unacceptable. Like the line is being drawn and um, for people to still be theoretically arguing about like would sex work exist in a post-revolutionary state when people are being harmed right now is, um, I think, really bad. Yeah. Well, I I can see where you're coming from on that one. I think we always like to talk about the communist horizon here on the Antifada, but I wanted to lead with the more crucial stuff that's happening right now in the present day because I realize people's lives are on the line. Um, I guess you partly answered this question, but like, why do you think Bernie Sanders has been so hesitant to come out in favor of decrim when he's been able to be like educated and pushed on a number of other issues by sort of the left flank of his supporters? Like it seems like one area where he is just really out of step with a lot of the movement that's behind him 
Um, like, if you want to take the DSA as a representative example, um, we passed a resolution in favor of decriminalization at the last national DSA convention. Overwhelmingly, it passed on the consent agenda, which means that it was so heavily supported that we didn't need to debate it at the convention. Granted, there was an effort by a small group of people to take it off of the consent agenda and force another vote on it, but they were voted down. Um, and yet, you know, the guy we endorse for president, the one that we're putting a ton of time and energy behind, um, doesn't support it. Like, is it just, does he think that it's going to torpedo his campaign? Is he not educated enough yet on the stuff you were just talking about? Like, what's going on here? I think it's still uh, within, like, I don't know, the vanilla political world, still very taboo of a subject. And I think, you know, especially with the whole, like, Bernie bro idea that if he were to take a hard stance on like decriminalization and sex workers rights people would misconstrue it and be like oh bernie sanders is like for the trafficking of women and bernie sanders doesn't care about women and the base of his you know fanboys has pushed him to this conclusion and it would i think like it could be like misconstrued as just like deeply anti-feminist based on the hate he's already getting from like the hillary supporters the warren supporters um i think it's something that like he has to be tactical about because trap like you can when you're uh voting against a bill that has the word like trafficking in its name it's easy to be like you don't care about victims you don't care about yeah. women right but at the same time like ro khan and pramila jayapal both voted against sesta foster right like yeah. the there are people who will take those political risks for the positions they believe in um i mean my ask isn't even that any of the candidates who've expressed openness to decrim, which is Julian Castro, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, say they want decrim. Right now, I understand that most of the country is in a very different place than where we are in New York, um, where people are experiencing hypercriminalization. Um, but I would just love to see him even uplift stories of people who have experienced harm under the under the system that we have. Like if he would talk about Leilene Polanco or Yang Sung or any number of the people who, you know, have been criminalized for doing survival work and asking the questions to the rest of the American people. Do you think this is like a good way to deal with this issue? Um, I, I, right now, what I see is all three candidates pretty similarly waiting for someone else to take a leadership position like no one's. No one's willing to take a leadership position of beginning to having beginning to have the conversation with the American public. Yeah. And it's weird, right? Because, I mean, there's so many issues like Bernie's been banging on about the same shit his entire career. And there are so many things that seemed outside of the mainstream in 2016 when he ran the first time around that are now in the mainstream because he just won't shut up about them like single payer health care. We thought that was, I mean, I didn't think it was crazy, but most people thought that was like some pie in the sky shit. And now like, it seems like it's entirely possible. So like, I understand his political reservations about like, oh, I'm going to get hammered by like the Hillary liberals and maybe the left isn't strong enough yet to like provide an oppositional voice in support of him. But it just seems like some weak shit to me. Yeah. It makes me sad. There is a possibility, like, I don't know, Bernie Sanders could be on some, like, fuckboy ML shit and think that, like, mm. sex work won't exist after the revolution, <laughs> so, like, why even talk about it now, you know? 
I mean, we don't know. It's possible. Well, one uh, thing that I thought was really interesting that you said was um, about how this this issue is being pushed so far because of the actual organizing. Like, uh, and as much as this discourse is about how different sex work is from other kinds of work, the organizing has at times looked a lot like traditional labor organizing. And uh, Rachel, you wrote about this in uh, Commune Magazine, an article called Strippers on Strike. And um, I thought that was a really good way to start think about, thinking about sex worker organizing, because so much of it we can't see because it's illegal and you can't talk too much about what those networks look like. Yeah. So um, in California, uh, there's a group called so- Soldiers of Pull, and they're doing some amazing work to unionize uh, within the strip clubs. And basically uh, what happened is there was a uh, landmark decision known as the Dynamex ruling um, that makes it harder for companies to misclassify their workers as independent contractors. So dancers have long been classified as independent contractors. So are like Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, dog walkers, programmers, journalists. Um, Oh, I'm very aware of that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sales associates, like so many different people. And it's just basically it's been going on since the 1970s as a way for um, companies to like not pay um, their workers, not pay their taxes and not give them benefits. Um, So underneath this new law, dancers are now um, employees. They're no longer independent contractors. And yet after this passed, the clubs began fucking with the dancers and um, just doing even more wage theft than usual. So dancers have to pay to go to work. We have stage fees, which, I mean, Oyster can probably talk about too. Yeah, anytime someone is complaining about how they have to pay to get into a strip club, um, often the dancers are paying at least, but like I would say like three to five times as much as the entry fee to get in. Sometimes it's even more than that, depending on what time you come in. Mm -hmm. So like when I was dancing in Manhattan, it was was like you know it was over a hundred dollars if not almost 200 and then working in new orleans it was a little bit less expensive it was still like about a hundred but right. we're yeah. paying to work and then on top of that you're paying fees so you're also like tipping out your house mom tipping out hair and makeup even if you're not using it you're tipping out your dj who like definitely doesn't fucking like you and then tipping out all of the bouncers like And then even after all of that base stuff that is expected from you and required as a part of your job, even though you are an independent contractor, you then, if you're in a club that has rooms, then tipping out your host. After the club also gets like a 30% cut probably of the room that you sold. Oh, it's like 50 now. Yeah. Yeah. In Manhattan, it was like often, it was almost 50% of the cost. So it's like if a room was, when I was working there, an hour was... $1,100 $1,100 and I would get at that point I would get I think about like 550 off of it yeah I think it, it is 50% usually across yeah. the board now yeah and then and then you're, you're meant to tip out the host that yep. did nothing but um, put you on the schedule for the yeah. room took this man's Amex yeah. and swiped it because for some reason like I can't touch the money yeah wow it sounds like the healthcare industry yeah it's like <laughs> insanely bureaucratic and then you know you get in some places there's you know a lot of shady shit happening um 
And like you're expected to tip out these hosts when they're expecting like actual like sexual favors from you as well. Well, like, that's how the managers extract sexual favors from you yeah. because they know that it's very possible to lose money in the club. It's extremely possible to go to work and not even make money but lose money. Yeah. And so then you're put in a position of like, well, if you want to make anything, you're going to have to do something for me. Um, so sexual abuse is also rampant yeah. uh, within strip clubs. Oh, yeah. And independent contractors are not protected from sexual harassment yeah, and no. abuse in most states exactly yeah so there's no we have no protections in addition to like this incredible wage theft that happens in the club system um so under this dynamics really now um legally in california dancers are classified um you know as like workers so uh they should be getting these protections but they're not what ended up happening was like these clubs were taking the taxes directly out of what the dancers made the night before just fucking them over still charging house fees even though that's now illegal um so this group soldiers of poll um they started organizing within the clubs to basically spread information on how to not let the clubs take advantage of you anymore and are forming a union hell yeah and um have they had any major victories so far What's going on with it now? I know they're organizing and I know they're talking about forming the union. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Like, what, do you know where they are with it right now? I haven't. After I got deleted from Instagram, I like lost like so many contacts from mm-hmm. like my sex worker organization. Which is another problem. Yeah. Fuck you, Instagram. Stop deplatforming sex workers. Literally, like everything that made the internet fun and enjoyable, like we're just now getting rid of. We're like, oh, like sex workers, hot people, like, no, not allowed. Nip- no. Female nipples. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just going like full trad now. Yeah. But people should, they are on Instagram, Soldiers of Paul. So, um, All right, cool. Check yeah. them out. We'll put a link in the description. So what are some of the challenges organizing in strip clubs? And um, what tactics do you find to be the most effective? Organizing in strip clubs is really interesting. This is something that I've done. It's something um, that I have like almost definitely gotten fired for from clubs. Um So when you're an independent contractor working in an environment full of other independent contractors, it's kind of like everyone is your competition. And then the management in these clubs will also like feed into that rhetoric that like, you know, these girls aren't your friends and that like they're trying to take money from you and like you take it as a personal insult. So it's really divided. And one of the things when I was uh, organizing both in New York and in New Orleans, um, after all of the clubs that got raided during Mardi Gras, was the fact that we had to come into this mindset of solidarity with workers. And the, in New Orleans, it was really interesting because it was, after we got raided, it was not only the dancers, but the bartenders, the barbacks, the cocktail waitresses, the cleaning staff. It was everyone who was out of money. And, you know, Mardi Gras season is like the highest season that you're working. Like they were girls that, you know, they told me they would make 40, 50 percent of their annual income just during that one month of time because of the tourism. So it was such an interesting and beautiful thing to have all of these different types of workers come together and organize and protest in the French Quarter and show up to the mayor's like grand reopening of Bourbon Street and just like fuck up his life 
And, you know, eventually the clubs got opened. There was a settlement. Um, you know, people paid the fines. The reason why those clubs got raided was also um, really fucked up. But it was like it, we all came together and had this understanding that, you know, all of us are affected. And then when my club that I was working at reopened, the owner who was like the one of the original owners of the franchise he kept two of the the clubs. He kept one in New Orleans and one in Texas. And him and his wife, who was also one of the owners, like personally thanked all of the workers because he was like, the city would have never done this unless you guys, you know, said something about it, unless you guys organized about it. So coming back into New York where it's like extremely cutthroat, where it's you're really pitted against each other and like you know and from a place down south where the culture is also like way different um and that's because of the independent contractor model too obviously yeah you know because everyone walks in in the hole you've paid money to be there it's a system that keeps you in debt and then has you stay afraid of like losing money and like owing debts to the club and there are clubs that like you know if you can't pay if you don't make enough money to pay your fee that night then oh it just gets tacked on to like the next night you come in so instead of like a hundred dollars you owe now it's two hundred dollars and then you have the pressure you know of making twice as much as you would have to cover last night's fees damn yeah it kind of reminded me of some shit that i dealt with when i was a misclassified permalancer myself in my blogging days and you know obviously there are differences but there are also similarities and i remember talking extensively with sean about it at the time like is it possible to organize independent contractors and he told me like it's really fucking hard the law is not on your side because the the state considers you like a small business owner when you're an independent contractor so if you try to unionize that's like price fixing and like i think there is an argument to be made that some jobs are like legitimately gig jobs they fulfill the requirements of independent contractorship but if you're being bossed around like an employee chances are you should be an employee so yeah. but i'm really impressed when anybody any kind of freelancers are able to organize and i think people are finally starting to do it now in the media sector because things are just getting so bad that it's finally getting through to like these downwardly mobile children of privilege who make up most of the media that like this is actually work so maybe i mean hopefully it might be an asset in some ways that stuff like stripping or driving an uber is typically seen as a more like working class profession and maybe you don't have that illusion of like oh i'm doing what i love so it's not labor i don't know maybe I mean, I'm hopeful for especially in California what they're doing with forming the stripper union. And if we got something like Dynamex in New York passed, then I could see the same thing happening here. And it makes me happy. It makes me hopeful. And I think what Charlotte Shane and others are doing with the freelancers union uh, for media is also like really exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's very impressive. I'm not going to hold my breath. But I also feel like something like this needs to be federal to be really effective. Because right now, like, I'm seeing freelance writers, like, freaking the fuck out about this because they're like, wow, all right, these publications probably aren't going to make most of us into employees. They're just going to use people from other states. So, like, I think we really need a national strategy in addition to the more localized work. Um, 
But I wanted to ask one more question in this section, if I may. And it's on standpoint epistemology, right? Because we hear a lot of the time, and the conventional wisdom is, you need to listen to sex workers on this issue. They know what they're talking about more than people who are not current or former sex workers. However, we have seen some people who who are or were sex workers or self-identified trafficking victims coming down on the wrong side of this. Um, like I'm thinking about a lady that Sam had on Majority Report recently who was uh, a trafficking victim and she had successfully sued, I think, a hotel chain for sort of uh, profiting and turning a blind eye to what was going on in the hotel in terms of um, sex trafficking. And she supported Sesta Fosta because she said that when she was uh, a victim, so to speak, um, like seeing ads made her think that this was normal and like taking the ads away would somehow like take away that power of the exploiters. So like, do you think someone, do, do you think someone needs to be a current or former sex worker to have an opinion in this conversation? Um, and, and how do you approach people who have been in the industry who have just come down on the wrong side of the issue? I mean, everybody has their own experience and everyone's interpretations of those experiences are valid. Um, I think to Miriam Kaba and what she says on people who have experiences, um, which is that just because someone's experienced something doesn't mean that they have good political analysis of it. It takes a really long time to develop that political analysis for, you know, survivors who um, support SESTA-FOSTA. Like, that's obviously their right to support whatever they wish. But it doesn't take away from the fact that SESTA-FOSTA is a piece of legislation that has put many, many sex workers on the street, um, has led to the deaths of several sex workers, and has just economically destabilized so many people and families. And so I think, like, we use the proxy of um, someone who's directly impacted because that person often has more stake in the conversation and has more knowledge but ultimately, we can't make policy just based on like what person A says, because easily person B could um, disqualify what person A is saying just by um, the fact that they are also a survivor or a sex worker. Right. And so um, listen to sex workers was something that was developed because sex workers weren't being listened to. It was only a, a handful of cherry picked survivors by sort of the carceral organizations that were being parroted about. And also on low key, like many of those people are still doing sex work because the carceral organizations don't even pay them enough to be their mouthpieces. But wow. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to move beyond that to a place where like, you know, as loath as I am to say this, like every every person needs to have a stake in this conversation because it actually matters to everyone. Like this is not a niche issue. This is an economy that many, many, many people participate in. Like not everyone is trading sex for money, obviously, but many people are trading sex for drugs, housing, food, hormones, all kinds of stuff. People experience all kinds of like coercion um, in their labor and people also experience all kinds of criminalization. So this is a conversation that everyone needs to have. Word. Yeah, I feel like it fits in very well to the wider labor movement in general, like the workers' rights movement. Which, which is, uh, George Soros is also bankrolling. Oh, my God. Yeah, she the, did the say that as well. That Sam did this interview with, um, she was, you know, she she sounded very reasonable. And then increasingly, she let on that she believes that George Soros is just trying to, like, 
degenerate Western culture through legalizing sex work and marijuana, which was very helpful that she threw that in at the end. Yeah, yeah, she kind of bummed me out because clearly she's been through some traumatic shit, but like she's just she's wrong about that. She's wrong about George Soros. She's wrong about Sesta Fosta. I mean, I would like my check, like, if he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they always call us the pimp lobby and that we have pimp lobby money. And I'm like, we're literally, like, we don't have money from Metro cards for people. So, like, I don't know what to say. I would love that pimp lobby money. It's never arrived. George, if you're listening. So, uh, <laughs> George, I, give us the pimp money. <laughs> we've had lots of guests ask you for money. We don't know why you aren't helping us out. Seriously. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. This is wage theft, George. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I would like to end this section with a little call to action. So how can anyone listening who's now very concerned about this topic get involved and help out? Yeah, so there's a couple things you can do. You can follow DecrimNY on Twitter. It's at DecrimNY. Um, and we like post calls to action all the time, which is like, call your legislator, come to this protest. Um, Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers is coming up. And so there's going to be a lot of different events around the city, which, you know, it will say whether it's open to the public or it's more space for people who have actually done sex work. Um, always give money to sex workers. A lot of people are doing sex work because they want to or or um, feel like this is a good choice right now. But a lot of people are also engaged in sex work because they have true basic needs that are not being met. Um, and so sometimes people experience housing crises, healthcare crises that like very often the sex worker community is the only community that um, is able to give to them. And so when you see those GoFundMes or whatever being shared, just just give money. Give money. Word. <laughs> give D, give decrim ny your money give sex workers money like the most direct way to help because like everyone's working because we need money so if you don't like the fact that sex workers have to suck dick for money just give us the money <laughs> and then we won't have to suck the dick anymore yeah and read Dead like ass. three articles by melissa Jure grant and talk to a friend about it because i don't want to do that um, but you're in a better position to do that than some of us are. Boom. There we go. Well, keep up the good work. Seriously. And my family was like, oh, you should pierce your ears now before she can remember. And my mom's like, no, I'm not going to adjust my child's body without her consent. And then I'm like, hey, I want to get my ears pierced, like, that same day. And then we went. I don't remember it. Like, I don't know how I felt. My mom would not let me get it done for a long time. She said it was for adult women only. She thought it would sexualize her child. Yeah. Is that a Jewish thing? I don't get it. My mom wouldn't let me shave my legs either or wear a bra for, like, a really long time, which is Mm. why... I wore, were you there when we were talking about this? I wore really long dresses in middle school, <laughs> like a weirdo. And oh. and it made, that's how I got the nickname, the French prostitute, because I think I looked like an 18th century, like, wow. courtesan, because I was just trying to hide my hairy legs. <laughs> well, clearly, her tactics you worked, and you are a perfect demure lady now. Yes, exactly. Who's so, the French prostitute now? Who's the French prostitute now, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Is it cool if I use that story in the episode? Yeah, go for it. Hell yeah. So, um, okay. Moving into our next section. 
Um, I, Nina had to go. I'm still here with Rachel and Oyster. And we're going to talk a little more about sex work and maybe get a little theoretical with it because we like to do that at the Antifada. We like to go full galaxy brain on things. So, all right. Let's kick it off with a question from a very horny friend of mine <laughs> who's like, Maybe one of those normie socialists, safe to say. Um, and he wants to know. Um, most people on the left, um, you know, the minority notwithstanding, are very supportive of decriminalization. They would never stigmatize someone for being a sex worker, but they might still look askance at a peer of theirs if they found out that they were purchasing the labor power of a sex worker. And he wants to know if this is a kind of hypocrisy, since sex workers need clients in order to make money, or is it more like the way you might support the people who work as personal chefs or, you know, like dog psychiatrists or whatever, without having to applaud the ruling class rich people for hiring them? I mean, that second part is my take that I added to try to explain it to him. I mean, I go to strip clubs. I love going to strip clubs and spending all of the money I just made sucking dick on sex workers. So I say, give your money to sex workers. Give your money to sex workers. Yeah. Like, just to reiterate that, like, an eighth time. Like, it's fine. I don't know. Also, like, mind your business. Like, who cares who you're fucking and how much you're paying? Like, I don't know. People, like, It's okay to hire off. a sex worker. Yeah. Like, just read her, like, boundaries page. Yeah, send like Tip the them. screening information in yeah. the first email. I mean, I think what this guy was really asking is like, would I stigmatize him for patronizing a sex worker? Oh my God. And I was like, fucking do what you want. I don't care. Maybe I don't need to know about it because we don't <laughs> know each other like that. I mean, my favorite clients are the ones that like, you know, often do come from like more working class background situations or just at all share my politics. Yeah. Like it's much more pleasurable. Yeah. I personally offer sliding scale rates for union members. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. That's practice. No one takes mm -hmm. advantage of that. I had like one client who was a part of like a, I don't know, like a SAG Afra kind of thing. He was like in media or like edit. I don't know. And, like, he was the only person who's like, hey, I'm union. I'm like, let's fucking get it, bro. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Patronizing sex workers is absolutely not like getting a personal chef. It is a longstanding working class tradition, for sure. All walks of life. Uh, a lot of people do it. And maybe the stigma doesn't make much sense. There should be stigma for, like, uh, mistreating or talking shit about yeah, sex workers. Yeah, fully. It's, I mean, people consume sex uh, in transaction in so many forms. Or, like every everyone you know and i think the most common one is like porn or like now only fans or like buying photos but it's like it's all the same thing like you're still yeah, you're still yeah yeah you're still purchasing like a f sexual fantasy and it's fine like everyone's doing it you're like this friend is fine <laughs> i mean maybe he's not fine in every area but he is in this one that's cool yeah i guess I would look differently because different people patronize sex workers for different reasons. And, you know, I might stigmatize a rich asshole for being a rich asshole um, in everything that they do and every service that they purchase. Whereas, you know, someone who's more working class probably gets more sympathy from me. Yeah. I haven't thought this through that much. 
It's also, like, if you're a rich asshole, I think, like, one of the easiest things you can do to make yourself just, like, less of a rich asshole is to give your money to the working class. Like... Redistribution. Yeah. Like, if you're a, if you're a man with a ton of money, like, not giving sex workers money. Like, that's way worse than just, like, giving the sex workers the money, in my opinion. Word. It was actually kind of funny, um... I brought a bunch of my DSA friends to a strip club in Atlanta during the convention, and a bunch of them had never been to a strip club oh before. God. I'm like, "You are you fucking serious? You guys are nerds. And it wasn't even a real strip club. It was like a topless bar oh, with okay. a really lit dance floor. Do you guys know about the Claremont Lounge? Yeah. It's, so it's a cool. classic. It's so good. It's truly iconic, actually. I love it so much. And the dance floor was like, so fun but i've already talked about this on this show so i'm like a grandpa i forget what stories (laughs) i've told and what stories i haven't told already so yeah um okay so don't stigmatize clients there we go um so rachel your poetry i was very happy to find that i liked your poetry oh thank you of course usually my reaction when i hear that there's poetry is like oh no, what time is that going to be over? (laughs) Let me show up afterwards. Um, I tend to hide from the readings when they happen uh, at Basilica Soundscape, one of my favorite places to hear music. They still throw in poetry here and there. I'm like, meh, but yours was really good. And I I kind of identified with it um, as, as a millennial who also hates working. Like the line, I'd rather die than work. I'm like, I fucking love you. I feel like so many people in our generation can identify with that because we are, you know, we're lazy and entitled and that's fine. <laughs> so you also talk a bit about um, hating your job, like in detail. And I think it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, you talk about hating your job, like everybody with a job does at some point or another. At the same time, you don't want your job to be illegal. Right. So, like, how do you reconcile this desire, this, like, human desire to speak your truth and complain about shit with the fear some people have that if they talk about the bad parts of sex work, like people in most professions do about their work, that's somehow going to fuel these anti-arguments? People are so invested in women not being complex People are especially invested in sex workers not being complex. Um, Yeah, and clearly, you know, the bad faith here is that the reader is reading me to find arguments against sex work. Um, So I think rather than, like, fitting my message around their sensitivity, we should bring our, our attention to, like, their ideological assumptions and ask why are they treating this form of work as exceptional, Um, And that's a question they can't answer and they often don't because it would bring up the anxieties that they have and the prejudices that they have around the sexual and around the working class. Um, But, you know, when I say, like, I would rather die than work, obviously, um, I'm writing about labor issues. I'm writing about my personal experiences, but I'm also writing about labor issues and like simple empowerment narratives when it comes to sex work. um, To me, that just they serve the clients. And when you are a full-service sex worker, when you're independent, the client is essentially your boss. And um, because of the criminalized status of sex work, 
they abuse their power. You know, they often do this by like trying to erode boundaries or expecting extra labor, um, which is something that even if it weren't criminalized, all bosses do like increasingly now under capitalism, like this hyper form of capitalism we have. Um, but when you're criminalized, you have even less protections around that. Um, yeah. I was also thinking like clients, like they retain power by using horophobia against us. You know, clients have completely dictated the parameters of what's called the girlfriend experience. You know, so that this marketed authenticity that they demand is used against us um, to, you know, not recognize the relationship as transactional you know, like I said, demanding more and more labor from us for less and less money. I don't want to throw you off, but could you briefly explain what the girlfriend experience is and how that relates to more? Sure. So I think it was a term that was invented by a pimp in like 2001 by Jason Itzler, who ran a, a, um, a company called New York confidential. Um, and, he came up with the girlfriend experience as just a simple marketing tactic as a way to give clients more and more of what they seemingly wanted, which is like more effective labor, more emotional labor and more control. Um, and, but what that means, so what does the girlfriend experience mean? It basically means that you're not allowed to use condoms for blowjobs anymore. Uh. You're expected to kiss on the mouth. You're expected to act as though, as Jason Itzler said to the girls that were working for him, act as though this man is your boyfriend of six months and you haven't seen him in weeks and you're so excited to see him. So just like this, you know, extra labor of love, of care, um, yeah. Do you have anything? To add yeah, on? it's just like um, the not opposite, but the parallel to that one would be the porn star experience, which is like, you know, fucking uh, in porn, which is like definitely like less intimate, a little bit like you're expected to do anal. Yeah, you're anal. expected to do deep throating. You're expected yeah. to do. um yeah. But it's like more like for me, like the porn star experience is like an obvious fantasy, right? So it's like, okay, like we know that porn isn't real life, or you know, we should. Um, with the girlfriend experience, it like blurs the parameters of like this transaction. Um, and it makes it like there's so much more emotion involved, um, especially on the side of the clientele. And it's like they, it's just, it, and it's like, just like a weird form of manipulation on like both ends where like the client has that really deep emotion and then he also wants you to feel that emotion and intimacy along with him instead of me just like showing up for an hour and giving you the nastiest head of your life and leaving like it has to be so much more involved on all fronts yeah so i also find it helpful to think about um uh, there's these terms, deep acting and service acting, that uh, we can look on where it's from, but it was like a study that was done, I want to say, in the late 80s or 90s about all service jobs in general and how all service workers are meant made to perform this acting, you know, pretending that they love their job, being cheerful. And some service workers engage in a more like shallow form of that acting where they can still hold on to their interior, whereas deep acting is more like method acting where you really have to believe that you love your job. And when you're made to do a girlfriend experience, and especially this is an extended date, it's really hard not to, in order to summon up the reserves it takes to do it, go into deep acting. And um, what I can't remember if they're sociologists or um, the people that were uh, writing about this effective labor, um, what they found is that in the long run, deep acting 
fucks you up more in terms of like PTSD because when you do break character, which you inevitably will, it's so much more painful and so much harder to get back. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, I don't even like hanging out with people that I don't really like. <laughs> yeah, because like, oh, this person can help me with my career or whatever. Just like pretend to be their friend for a bit. I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Not worth it. So I can only imagine. I mean, I'm also just like a very blunt bitch. So that's probably part of it. I've never been able to pretend much of anything. So it's probably a liability for me. Um, I also, it also reminds me of this, uh, what is it? The syndrome this like face mask syndrome that I think women were coming down with in Japan because they were just forced to act happy all the time at their jobs and this kind of emotional labor and the toll that it takes on you. Mm -hmm. There's also the much less popular wife experience, of course, where (laughs) you um, argue about money and the kids and, you know, don't have sex with them at all. Well, a friend of mine is trying to brand as the ex-girlfriend experience where you come (laughs) over and you fuck, but she's just kind of mean to you and Mm. like insults you and mostly ignores you. That sounds like more fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, my girlfriend experience is um, I come over, uh, I eat all of the food in your house. uh, (laughs) I yell at you for like not doing the dishes and then I take one of your credit cards and then I leave. Hell yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like they they constantly want this more authentic, more authentic experience and they push and erode the boundaries and you're punished for not letting down your boundaries. And then if you do start to let them down, you let your your real self show, you're punished for that too. Um, Of course. That sounds not that different from bourgeois marriage in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't even know. Like, this is where you know, like liberal or bougie feminists, uh, when they say like, oh, sex work is bad, but like marriage is good. It's like, really? Yeah. I'm going to think about that for a second. (laughs) Well, it's like, like, I, when would you say, you know, women especially started getting married for reasons other than like financial stability, like, like 50s, 60s, like, I'd say after that, yeah, more like 80s, 90s yeah. even. And like even now, you know, there are what is that? I don't People college, still get married like, for financial stability yeah, all the oh, time. Yeah, I think like um there are like some colleges and their unofficial slogan is like ring by springer your money back. Oh my god. You're getting like oh, your IRS. Yeah. Again, uh. I didn't go to college, so I'm just like trusting what I hear <laughs> about it. I mean, that doesn't make college sound very good. No. Yeah. <laughs> I did one semester of art school and I was like, eh. That's totally fair. Yeah. I'm like, still not for me. But it's, um, yeah, people are still getting married for financial stability. You know, like typically. Of course they are. We're still living under like patriarchal capitalism that's going to keep happening. We sure are. Um, So say that we weren't living under patriarchal capitalism. (laughs) Uh, This is something that we've talked about a bit in the past, um, uh, especially following up on Michelle O'Brien's articles in Commune. Uh, people, you know, everyone needs love and affection and touch. I, in my opinion, people don't need sex, but that's debatable. Uh, so is there a role for something like sex work or even something like what we're talking about with the girlfriend experience where this, this kind of like emotional fulfillment that might not be entirely real, but there's like a reality to it in a non-transactional way in like a totally freely given mutual aid way. Yeah. I mean, I have maybe a little bit of a rant about this. So um, 
I said in an interview that I did with Brooklyn Rail um, that I'm not really a fan of sitting around and imagining what life will be like after the revolution. Um, oh, no. That's <laughs> like our favorite pastime <laughs> oh, no. here. Well, you know, it's just like the making of political features comes through political action and not from trying to deduce what it will be like. But I do think it's really important to like hold on to a vision of what a liberated, humane life means. And for me, like... Uh, a world beyond waged labor means a world where labor is comes with dignity. And, you know, labor is made lighter with the knowledge that it's being performed for like a comrade, for a friend, for your community. Um, so to the question of like whether sex work will exist uh, after the revolution, you know, it depends on like how the left or the future society welcomes sex workers and asks them what they want to do. Because sex workers are also entertainers. And, like, um, there are forms of sex work that people engage in as passion projects. Like, for example, we, Oyster and I, were just at the Berlin Porn Film Festival. Um, I was covering it for my column in Garage Magazine. And um, these are people who, like, also often with the help of the German welfare apparatus, they're filmmakers and actors, and they're making, you know, this, like, queer, indie, artsy porn, you know, not for a profit, but for art's sake. Um, they're making it, you know, as a part of the community and to give back to the community. So, like, after the revolution, I don't see someone like me not throwing orgies, and I don't see someone like Oyster not pole dancing at the parties that I throw and pole dancing is like also what she gets paid to do now. So that's why we need to erode the distinction between work and leisure time. I hated communization theory at first, but the more I talk about this shit, the more it seems like a solution to a lot of these fucking problems, because otherwise you're still going to have this kind of barracks communism. Like we'll get into that a bit in the colon tie where like, some forms of labor are considered to be productive and others unproductive. And like, I keep trying to figure out where sex work fits into there because it's so many different things. Like, is it more like art where it like makes, gives people pleasure, but doesn't, isn't necessary for society to function. People should just do that in their free time and like do their commie vocation. They're like 15 hours a week or whatever that they have to like work in the commissary. Is it, therapy which serves a widely accepted uh social purpose which we're obviously still gonna have and consider productive or is it more like social reproductive labor which would go along with um like child care cooking cleaning all of that stuff which i think a lot of people want to collectivize to the greatest extent possible when we're living in a more communal way Um, But it doesn't seem to fit in there either, really, because sex is not as much of a necessity as childcare or cooking or cleaning or whatever. So when we do so much as sex workers, you know, and like the the work that we do, it's like all women are trained to do that labor for free. You know, it's effective labor. It's the labor of care. It's the labor of sexual entertaining. Um, You know, we're all trying to do that for free or maybe to trade some sort of security for it in the same way that like women are expected to do child rearing for free. Um, You know, sex workers have found a way to be paid for this labor. But like I said, under criminalization, the client holds a lot of power over the parameters around that. And so I really like resist something like the girlfriend experience or there's always ways that escorts are trying to, you know, remarket themselves and come up with new words. And it's popular terms like uh, 
sex workers call themselves companions. Oh courtesans. Well, yes, someone will always try to call them, or, or providers. Like, those are very popular right, terms. Yeah. I've always liked coming from the strip club myself, entertainer, because I try to hold on to that. Like, I am creating a little theater here. You know, I am giving you this entertainment rather than giving you this therapy service. Yeah, and I've talked about this a little bit, um, like on my client-facing platform, where there are like a, there are some um, escorts and sex workers who pride themselves in being like, "Oh, I'm like a therapist," and I do not want my clients coming to me for therapy because they have, and it's like. I am someone who barely graduated high school. I am someone I am who not doesn't trained, have any sir. of the degrees. <laughs> I like I I, I'm not qualified to be a therapist. But they therapist. don't want a real therapist. They just want someone who's going to be like, listen and like give them what they want to hear. That's what they're paying for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah it's uh they want the things to be like reverbed. I imagine if you gave them some real talk, they might not react that well. I mean, exactly. yeah, like we can talk about, you know, like CBT, like the not sexy kind and do that and like actually <laughs> work through that. But like, I don't know, like if I'm also going to be your therapist, I'm going to keep my clothes on and like your dick will not enter me like i i cannot like i'm not qualified to be a therapist in any capacity like and i don't understand why you know and like women in general that like what is that like very like facebook quote thing like be his peace or whatever like <laughs> like i'm not trying to be that for anyone no thank you yeah i mean sex workers aren't the only people who men expect to be their therapist yeah yeah exactly like literally any any woman that they just project their uh, maternal desire onto. Ugh. Yuck. I, I, yeah, I always think work is healthier when the relationship between uh, workers and bosses is kind of laid bare. And that's why I like unions. Yes. Because it makes it very clear. I'm a worker. This is work. I'm doing a job. Maybe you like your job. Maybe you don't. But like it is at the end of the day, like kind of an oppositional relationship because most people would like to work as little as possible for as much money as possible. And most bosses would like to, I mean, they're incentivized. It's a, it's like a directive of capitalism. I mean, it's a little different when we're talking about like directly hiring services, but most people would like to get as much labor as possible for as little money as possible. Oh yeah. They're trying to bust like fucking four nuts in an hour sometimes. Like, Oh my God. That's a lot of nuts. It's a they lot. Try. It's In this lot. economy, <laughs> they're taking the Cialis like three hours prior. They're like prepping for it. It's like game day. <laughs> Damn. Oh, where was I? That might be all the questions I had in the section. What do you think, Andy? Oh, wait. So you had one about why the left doesn't support sex work. Oh, yeah. Around. Let's talk about that. And Swerfs and Turfs. I can talk about both of yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. So. I. So where should we start? So like, yeah, okay. There is a strain of shall we say normie socialists who are like generally socially reactionary social democrats although there's certainly uh, also a tradition of that among like more leninist types who are like actual communists who have social conservatism in them who are sort of reluctant to jump on this cause even though they tend to be vulgar workerists when it comes to other professions and Maybe I'm asking the wrong person because neither of you guys are that kind of socialist. But like, where do you think this hesitancy comes from? I We talked about this last night, but I think a lot of it comes from seeing sex outside of the boundaries of like conventional relationship and outside of what is typically seen as like 
heteronormative, heteromantic relationships um, and, you know, common ideas. Um, Sex work is inherently queer, in my opinion. Sex work is so gay and sex work is so driven by gayness and like directly opposes uh hetero romanticism and heterosexuality um and how we view traditional relationships and i think that scares a lot of people especially because they don't really know anything outside of it yeah that makes sense i think it also goes along with their fear of the demand of family abolition yeah Mm -hmm. because they see i mean i've heard this argument from people they're like they see the nuclear family or the relationships people have with each other voluntarily as this shelter from the market without recognizing that nothing is sheltered from the market under capitalism. It's all commodified already. So like when you talk about abolishing the family, they get really freaked out because they can't look forward far enough to a horizon where that is a third option, right? It's not like full neoliberalism, social democracy with reactionary characteristics. Those aren't the only two choices. Like there's a third option that seems much more liberatory to me. So when the article came out in the cut, the hooker laureate of the dirtbag left about my book party, um, you know, there was some negative response on Twitter from a good chunk of people who like I seemingly share politics with these sort of leftist people. Eh. Um, I haven't read any good argument on why sex workers shouldn't be part of the left. I mean, to me, that's preposterous. Um, it seemed like they were having gut reactions, you know, and there were some people saying, like, this is not a good look for the left and respectability politics. Exa- much. And it was also people who are like, how do we explain this to the working class man in the Midwest? <laughs> Which, like, that's not only extremely condescending, but like coming from a working class community in the Midwest, like I can assure you that these people are partying, you know, like are doing drugs and like that many of them are also queer. It might not be in the visible ways that we are in New York. Or Wait a second. You're saying men in the Midwest do drugs. I've <laughs> exactly. never heard of that before. Um, but I feel like this is an argument that's always been made on the left and it's just like made to keep out what they consider undesirable people, you yes. know, um, from being on the left and like when leftists, it's always been going on when leftist activists were trying to include people of color, LGBT people, um, immigrants, there were always people argue that this would affect, you know, the status of on the left of the working class community. Um, but like, it seems to me like the working class community is always like way more generous and inclusive than these people imagine. Um But yeah, to get to your guys point about the family, I feel like the same people that were criticizing my party, the way that I celebrate and show care with my friends and my community are the same people who throw weddings and like, (laughs) you know, I spend money to celebrate my book launch. This is how I celebrate with my community. And like, why are they so mad? It's because like, they don't think queer sex and drug use are respectable. And like, yeah, within marginalized communities that like, you know, exist outside of heterosexuality outside of the family, like, you know, this is how we show care. Yeah. I also think sometimes they have like a hierarchy in their minds of which workers are strong enough to fight this battle and which workers are not. Um, as well as like a hierarchy of whose labor is more productive or more important to society. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's also, I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of those types of, like, normie uh soak dams don't see like emotional labor sexual labor like labor that is often uh you know done by women and not men they don't see it as valid or again it falls into that hierarchy where it's not as important as labor that is typically done by men but they love nurses though yeah <laughs> like, i mean who amongst us does not have a nurse fetish <laughs> seriously yeah, I think that's uh, a them problem, honestly. Yeah. I don't think we need to worry too much about them, though. Hopefully, I don't know. This attitude has been around on the left for a long time. It's probably not going to go away anytime soon. But I think the more of a voice sex workers have in the conversation, the more people are going to recognize that you're right. So I have one more question in this section. I'm so glad you reminded me, Rachel, because I want to know your thoughts on this. It seems to me like a lot of the same people who tend to be swerfs or sex worker exclusionary radical feminists are also TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And like, what's the connection there? Is it that they have this like essentializing definition of womanhood that then needs to be protected? Because you rarely hear swerfs talking about male sex workers or like what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the common thread is that these people are reactionaries who claim to be on the left as a way to shield their just horrible ideas. Um, you know, they claim they're working to keep women safe. TERFs claim that they want to keep what they would call real women safe, which like turns my stomach to even say. Um, and swerves claim they want to keep trafficked victims safe. Um, but what they're really doing is like attacking the most marginalized women. They're they're punching down. Um, I think they hate women that are socially below them and, um, they want these women to stay in their place and it's about internalized sexism. Um, these two, uh, trans people and sex workers also, again, like disrupts the idea of the nuclear family, which is something mm -hmm. that I think a lot of these types of exclusionary feminists rely on. And then when you also look at, um, sex workers and trans people, uh, as a whole, it's, there's a lot of crossover. So many trans women, the only work that is accessible to them in a lot of circumstances is sex work. Um, you know, when you look at laws in America, like you can you face so much discrimination, you know, firsthand uh, for being trans. And then you can also like be fired. You can lose housing in certain circumstances. So you have in, in both of these groups of people, um, it's you know, not exclusive to itself. Many trans people have also done sex work. Many sex workers are not only trans, but, you know, involved deeply in the trans community and the fight for trans rights. I also think it's not a coincidence that swerfs are like always upper class liberal girl boss feminists. Um, and like they see that like sex work sustains our communities. We do sex work not only to sustain ourselves and like enjoy our lives to like have enough money to like have cool clothes or whatever but like to you know take care of each other to yeah. take care of our children to take care of like our spouses who are maybe out of work um yeah yeah it's also like a weird ventriloquizing sometimes i find like when people say oh the working class won't be comfortable with this what they really mean is i'm not comfortable with this yeah. and they just don't want to say it but, like, I guess there's also some people who, like, just in good faith think it's a bad strategy. I don't want to generalize. I don't want to be unkind to the people that I disagree with. 
I'm really trying. I'm trying here. (laughs) I mean, like, there are some people who, like, they, you know, when they were say negative things online they're just like this is completely bourgeois and i guess like there's this sort of like unsaid thing that they think of sex workers as class traders maybe um but it's like how does sex work negatively impact any like working class people it doesn't like if it impacts anyone it's like the wealthy wives who like you know thinks that that money is hers that like whose husband is spending the money that's legally hers and her children's um, yeah, so again, it's no coincidence that these people are the swerves. Man, you hear that, folks? If you don't want to be on the side of the bougie white feminists, support sex workers, please. Come on. I think they're just jealous because they want to try cocatamine. <laughs> That's great. It is really good. Man, we could do a whole other episode on like the... On cocatamine. We could do yeah. a whole Drugs. line of cocatamine right now. <laughs> oh my God. Break it out. Break it out. <laughs> Oh my I mean, God. did you guys see that Hillary Clinton like came out as a turf recently too? Oh my God! No, yes. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she kind of backtracked, but she like was saying that she was concerned about trans women sharing like so-called women's spaces Jesus or something. Christ. Yeah, like the war on real woman type thing. Okay, boomer. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I never know how to finish things, so I'm just gonna say we're gonna end it on okay. <laughs> okay, but yeah. Um, and now we can move into the real coal and tie hours. What if we end it with uh, shut the fuck up, turf? <laughs> That's good yeah, okay. too.